1: This is your podcast, Get to the Good Part. I'm Chris, and with us is fellow Gunter, Aaron Margulis. Hello, amigo.
0: Hey, how's it going?
1: Ryan is currently fighting off a small army of Gunters on Ludus, but he will be back with us in coming episodes. In the meantime, he has instructed us to press on with Chapter 16. So let's get back into it. And the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to do a a 10,000-foot view of the chapter. Normally, we kind of break it down, go go nap at the earth, uh, but what i'd like to do is is kind of come from the top because when i listen to this chapter it seems on first listen very boring like like really there ought to be a montage song at this point that's that's cutting across but the gist here is, is that while Ludus is being bombarded by ioi and then later infected by the rest of the gunters out there he is in the process of sort of shedding his own life and taking a trip across country to what is sort of the equivocal Mecca of, of gun tourism. He's heading off to the middle of Ohio, which of all places is not really a Mecca, but, you know, in this book, it's a Mecca.
0: It, it glitters like Oz. It glitters like <laughs> I've been
1: there. It does not glitter like <laughs> I've Oz. I've been there
0: too, and uh, I wanted to make sure I said that. Is
1: it's not,
0: <laughs> not Oz. Not anything
1: like Oz. Although I think it's cool that, that he kind of makes that comparison that the trip is somewhat as dangerous and as sort of long and winding as coming to Oz, or maybe just you know over the horizon after hours across flatland. And really, that's what it is when you're coming to Columbus, Ohio. Mm-hmm. It's just miles and miles, hundreds of miles of flat land to Columbus, Ohio. That you could see the city sort of rise above the distant horizon as you're driving to it, and. That's that's an interesting scene or description because you couldn't say that about every city, No, but that's most certainly true in this flattest of places. I just think it's funny
0: that if Columbus is this glittering Oz of a city, how shitty is everything else leading up to it?
1: (laughs) Well, he, he says that just every city in between is just one crap hole after another crap hole after another crap hole. And that, uh, and that it's kind of depressing, that it isn't any better, that, you know, he's coming out of the stacks. And maybe the hope is that as he moves through the country from one city to the next, that maybe it's better. But it's the same scene over and over again until you get to the one place that is, again, Oz-like, and yeah. glittering in the distance. I don't know if you wanted to so, do
0: your uh, your overview, but I did notice something else very interesting about his trip, that he was very contradictory to himself. but. How so? So earlier he said that if he could leave the stacks that he would pick pick up and go and not look back. But one of the first mm-hmm. thing he does when he gets, you know, like on the bus is he decides to keep his visor off and look at the city of his birth.
1: Wow, I didn't even I didn't even remember that quote, but that's absolutely right. That's really arcane there and that maybe there's a part of him that harkens back to his old life i think so but but what i'd like to do first is to kind of work from the beginning because i did do the overview actually <laughs> it's so broad it's just you know you know leave his life travel to new city meanwhile in the oasis all hell is breaking loose in scene things but are I getting this real. chapter as 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 boring as this chapter hit me originally as i reread it again there are a lot of really interesting sort of subtle things. And and the first bit that I wanna kind of poke at and prod at is, is his reflection on on the oasis and that IOI has created this immediate stronghold that they could bring their their people in and sort of cycle through this airlock system. And I think we talked a little bit about that in the last chapter, mm. but that there's this depression that I feel almost like if if you could imagine drowning. And, and the moment before dying embracing the shit of the situation and embracing an impending death like there's a a release it is a bad situation but you almost reach that place of, of non-emotion and now the things that are occurring are almost matter of fact and in fact this entire chapter feels very matter of fact how he talks he, he reflects back on how you know the, the scoreboard is stacking up that the IOI peeps are, are lining up underneath all of the other folks, you know, all, the rest of the, the, the top five or the high five. And it's just IOI, 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 IOI. And he even goes in there and says, I know Sorrento doesn't know how to play joust. There's no way. He just... I'm not sure how he somebody... knows that, but... Oh, I, I think there's that, that... It feels depressing. It feels like he's just kind of... He's not emotional. He's not pissed off. He's not saying it's not well, fair.
0: I thought that was really surprising. Because, like think about it they have the the tomb enclosed you know mm-hmm. perhaps indefinitely and he doesn't have this game over attitude game over man you know, he he should be devastated the the the, uh, the top score list is filling up with sixer avatars i mean how is he not flipping his shit
1: i think he's gone past anger and denial and has moved straight to acceptance. Like he just fast forwarded through that shit. Uh, maybe. And that's just kind of my speculation. But I hear there's, this, there's this tone of depression. And, and I want to read a little bit. Because I think it's just. Even in that first couple paragraphs. He's, he says. I recognize the first 6 six-year employee number to appear. Because I'd seen it printed on Sorrento's uniform. He probably insisted that his avatar be the first to obtain the copper key. And clear the gate. But I had a hard time believing he had done it on his own. There's no way he was that good at joust or that he knew war games by heart. And then he just kind of continues on to sort of recap Mm. how somebody could have just as easily filed in and taken over and and fed the lines or just played it. But that Sorrento making sure that his number, whether anyone knew it or not, was the one right under the top five is that arrogance and him making it personal. It's almost like a sucker punch. Him coming back and saying, I got it anyhow. Mm. which is it's kind of it's he's being a dick uh, but i think here it's it's sorrento being emotionally involved like he really cares that people know that he is the first one even though everyone knows that he has an army that's helping him do this
0: yeah uh is it bravado is it ego that would make him want to do that uh or just sorrento's an asshole and that I, I, I'm, just, I'm picturing him sitting there saying okay guys slow down in your games I need to be the one that finishes first because fuck everyone else
1: yeah yeah. if anyone's number is going to be at the top by God it's going to be mine and because this is going to be mine and it, it kind of has that that ownership thing when we go back to the description of him walking through the hallways and the others salute him and he just ignores them so I, when I when I saw this I felt like You read the description of like over 60 IOI personnel filling the leaderboard. And immediately I started thinking it's IOI swarming the system. And this is the first time you see this flex of power by IOI that is successful. And he just gets in there and fills the leaderboard and just swarms it. And he kind of reminds me of, of a Hydra. And when you think of all the heads coming out of a Hydra, you think of all of the IOI personnel. And the minute you kill one, two pop up in its place. But that what Sorrento is very specific about indicating is that he is not a head of the Hydra. He is the Hydra. And all of the heads are him. And and to make that note that he sits, that his representation is out front as the Hydra, but everything else you see are just the heads and that the heads are going to get you. He kind of has this sort of, this, this hopelessness of wondering how Spider Man's going to kill or or defeat Doc Ock because he's got all of these damn arms hmm. and he can just reach out and overpower him, so you can't get close enough to defeat the thing in the center of this. And that's what I that's what I kind of got reading this the second time through, just after the first few paragraphs. Yeah. Like, Holy crap! I could see this defeated soul.
0: Yeah, that was one of my notes too. Was that you know how. How is he not like how are we not seeing his depression a lot more coming through in his words? Because it's really like a worst nightmare.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it really is. Uh, I mean, his only
0: advantage is that he's already got the key um, and um, opened the gate and has the next clue. That's his only advantage at this point. But is it? Well, I mean, he doesn't have to try to get through the force field.
1: He doesn't. But in the same note, the thing that made him special is now no longer special. Mm. Hundreds of people now have the key. That he sits as a reigning champion on top uh, is no longer really all that special.
0: Yeah. Well, remember when, when Artemis, uh, when he saw that Artemis cleared the, the first gate, he said, I suddenly didn't, or whatever his words were, I suddenly didn't feel as special anymore. And that was just one person, someone he thought was an equal, let alone an enemy enemy
1: and now he's just being overwhelmed yeah
0: maybe maybe he really is defeated it's just you know it's just being glazed over because there is still a lot going on in the chapter
1: there is another thing that i thought was interesting and we've touched on this in other chapters is this idea of economic inequality in the oasis and while it's really neat that education is freely accessible by anyone that the people with the money are the ones with the power, both in the real world and in the Oasis. And when the gunters were coming together to try to get past the shielding of IOI, it, it wasn't a bombardment. It wasn't the wizards that they threw to turn it into a no magic zone. It wasn't all the different little things that they did independently. They had to go buy two big bombs together, pool their resources mm-hmm. together to blow one force field <laughs> and then blow the next one so that they could get in. And that was the only way that they could get past them. And when they brought those down, they just funneled in. I I could just imagine this being like Black Friday for the Oasis,
0: Mm.
1: where they're just all rushing the front door to get to play joust.
0: And listening to his description of just how dreary the whole world is right now, in my reread, I was thinking, how are there so many people that can afford to just go around, you know, transport themselves to Ludus and funnel themselves into this tomb? Uh, that, I was a little bit taken aback by that, just wondering how can so many people be so – I mean, Wade himself is, you know, poor as shit. And he's not the only one. And he's, you know, formerly living in the stacks. How many other people living in the stacks? I mean, H is a bit of an anomaly because we know he, you know, he competes and he makes money, but we have to assume most people are going to be similar footing as Parsival.
1: Yeah. And in- you think about Ludus being one of two worlds that they can go to without at least much expense in travel, because you've got your spawn world that has a lot of retail stores and whatnot, and you've got Ludus that's the school world. Yeah. So he gets the free education. He can spawn into Ludus. Moving around Ludus costs money.
0: Well, getting off Ludus costs money.
1: Sure. Or possibly coming to Ludus from another world that isn't the spawn world maybe costs money. But the idea that, you know, the minute those gates open, again, the most powerful of the Gunters come through, which pretty much just trounces the ability for anyone else to get in there and try and get a shot at the key. And even makes note there that 95% 95% of the people that go through there yeah. don't actually get
0: the 95%. Key.
1: But that the other 5% that do just fill, you know, continue beyond the hundreds. And I thought that's that's poignant, mm. both from an economic perspective and the fact that it was still hard enough that so many gunters that went in, that had been preparing their entire life, calling themselves gunters, couldn't get past the first key, even when it was dropped in their lap.
0: Could you imagine being in a room with thousands of joust games just going and people are just elbow to elbow, going against the Lich King, uh, the fingers crackling? That's got to be a scene.
1: That's got to be noisy. Yeah. Can you can you imagine a giant cave with a bunch of crackling Lich Kings? I mean, Demi Liches kind of crackling. It's just... It's
0: not like being in an arcade where the other games are different. You can filter out the other sounds, but when they're all the same game, that's gotta It'd be, be like being in
1: an arcade at a nursing home. <laughs> 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 I'm gonna get you now. <laughs> My arthritis is acting up. <laughs> I remember yeah, when I games mean... <laughs> cost a quarter. Uh, I know, it's just, it's gotta like, I can't, I could can just imagine there being just this giant line of people trying to just stick their foot on the dais you know just to get their foot in on the dais to tap and then another Demi Lich pops up and says you want to go get that corner you want to do you want to do it over there let's yeah. let's go over there we we'll, we play with it? it's totally packed here so there's just that corner so that scene's just got to be horrendous i wonder if there's like a max you know or it's just i i, I hope they maybe portray that in the movie possibly what a crowded <laughs> hall <laughs> with rows and rows of joust machines and lynch kings just lined up or, across with or even just playing against them
0: getting through the tomb and maneuvering the traps i mean i guess if one the if the lead person disables all the traps or whatever then everybody else is free to go through and where'd all the money go
1: where <laughs> the people grabbing <laughs> coins out of the pews as they oh, get through I, I think uh you guys talked about
0: was a chapter seven or eight mm-hmm. and you know could you just go in and farm money but now you got thousands of gunters and sixers going in and are they getting that money too and maybe every every night the,
1: it resets maybe <laughs> the first few get it maybe i still think that's uh, an interesting that, question uh it's something that's got glossed over that all of a sudden the the way you know it's, it's oh, well they get there and then they fight or they play and then a lot of people die but i think what's more interesting is that if 95% are not making it, let's just say 20% don't make it past the traps. People are running, and you see a few of them getting shot down by arrows ah. or falling into traps, right? Ah, But some of them make it through. And then when they do, they're playing against a hall full of Lich Kings in which when you lose, the Lich King goes into battle with you. Fuck that so shit. So now you've got... <laughs> so 90% of the room is in utter chaos of slaughter Yeah, while the other peeps are still playing.
0: It's going to be like so, Battle uh, the Bastards or something like that. It's going to be this <laughs> crazy. Yeah, I don't know how you, I don't know how you play the game, let alone try to defend yourself against the Lich King. But anyway,
1: and if the if the Lich King kills you, do you lose all your stuff? Because mortality in this game seems to be a persistent thing. There is no respawn. So if you know, a die and you're dead. You've lost your shit. It dropped on the floor. So
0: I think maybe the game plan is to go in there and not play against the Lich, and just collect all the stuff from all the dead avatars.
1: Yeah, because you're not going to get attacked. No. Because you're not playing them.
0: Lich King doesn't care about you. The other avatars can't hurt you. It's no PvP. And people right, are right, dying right. and losing their shit.
1: So I have a free-for-all. I like how your mind moves into, I don't care about the key, but I do care about profiting off of the deaths of thousands of gunters. Well, remember,
0: allegedly these are all high-level avatars. Allegedly, sure. some of them might have artifacts, magic items, you know, new set of armor that's better than what's in the in the tomb. I think that yeah, would be the loobie. best shopping ever. That's better than Black Friday. That's like get that's huh. like ordering something on Amazon and finding out that they didn't charge you for it a thousand right. times. Uh,
1: that's it's awesome. <laughs> just walk through and just start collecting stuff. Yeah, I'm just going to use this later.
0: Hey, some of it might help you against the Lich King.
1: Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. If you put on enough armor, I suppose um, it's not going to hurt you too horribly. Uh, we keep all right, focusing so on previous chapters. It, it it does kind of it does harken it, back. It's interesting does. how some of this stuff circulates forward. But we move out of out of the tomb of horrors that's been filled and is is in my mind looks like a swarm of ants from a distance crawling into the holes that is this skull platform. Uh, but moving on. This entire chapter feels like him dying and taking the travel into the underworld to the Elysian Fields. I want to make some kind of direct comparisons here, and the first is this general attitude that he's left behind a life when he when he goes and gathers his stuff. Everything that exists that is important in his world is now in that van, and he takes everything he needs to connect to the Oasis. And one physical object that is separate from the Oasis. And that is his physical copy of Halliday's... Anorex almanac. And that's it. He locks the van and throws the key away. Like, my first thought was, what the hell is he doing? That's, like, that's potentially his backup. That could be his plan B. But a person who believes that they're dying, there is no plan B. There is no coming back. So to me, the van was, like, his embodiment in the physical world. And then he was literally coming out of the van, taking the only things that mattered to him and throwing the key away to his life. And then your next step in moving through or into the underworld is, is coming to the entrance of the underworld. And, and the entrance of the underworld is, is flanked on all sides by, by fear and hunger and death and agony. And it talks about him having to move out of the stacks and, and secretly get past what's in the stacks, which is really just a, a shitload of poor people that are in fear and hunger and agony. It's almost as if the stacks are the entrance to the underworld, mm. and then he has to shed his life in order to enter the underworld. Mm. So in doing that, he says he goes and he, he gets online, and for a little bit of cash, he... he Hacks the identity registration and creates a new identity, creates a new name. Uh, What was the name again? Uh, Bryce Lynch. Now, I'm not familiar with the Bryce Lynch bit. Can you – do you – I'm sure there's something to it. I've just not researched that part.
0: Yeah, no, I I looked it up because why not? This is what we're supposed to do. And um, so Bryce Lynch is a character from the TV show Max Headroom. Uh, i'm sure everybody remembers the uh what was it the pepsi commercials or uh maybe some of the people will certainly remember it from uh back to the future 2 when you have max Hedrum doing the uh the thing in the cafe 80s um mm. so uh in the in that show bryce lynch was a child prodigy and computer hacker uh which is kind of appropriate given uh, given wade's character um yeah, there's a whole bunch of other stuff about, uh, this character that's not really relevant, but, you know, I didn't pick up on that until I looked it up, because I'm not exactly a scholar on Max Edward.
1: Neither am I. I mean, <laughs> I used to watch it, but I had never seen a Bryce character or a reference to that in the show at all.
0: The The only Bryce character I've ever seen in the kind of like, a in geek, modern geek culture is from the TV show Chuck. Mm. And, uh because he was one of the uh one of the spies. So anyway, so that's the uh that's where the Bryce Lynch name comes from. Uh this might be a good segue into some uh name research that I was doing. Um, okay. So I'll kind of preface it that uh this week I w- I started and finished uh listening to uh the novel A Clockwork Orange. And uh, in the audiobook that I was listening to, there was an introduction written by the author in the eighties and so I started delving into some other things but uh there I found this article where he was talking about the the name uh for the lead character Alex, and where that name came from. The part of this particular article that I wanted to highlight was he said you know." Uh, People think that it was, uh, I'll just read it. The hero of both the book and the film is the young thug called Alex. I gave him that name because of its international character. You cannot have a British or Russian boy called Chuck or Butch. And Mm. also because of its ironic (laughs) connotations. (laughs) Alex is a comic reduction of Alexander the Great, slashing his way through the world and conquering it. But he is changed into the conquered, impotent, wordless, he is a law, a Lex, L-E-X, mm-hmm. unto himself. He becomes a creature without a Lex or Lexicon. The hidden pun he becomes,
1: he becomes speechless. Yeah.
0: But Alex, a Lex, Lex and Lexicon. I thought that was really cool. And we will unplug my Alexa so she doesn't start talking in the middle of the podcast. Because <laughs> she got real blue for a second. Uh, so... After reading that, I was like, huh, let's, what does Wade mean? We all know Wade is kind of like to like wade through something. But one of the definitions of Wade that I found was get involved in something vigorously or forcefully.
1: Such as to wade into war.
0: Yeah. Or here's another one. To read laboriously through a long piece of writing.
1: Okay. Anorak's Almanac. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting circle around that's 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 a pretty cool connection
0: i was like ah look at that because like i just oh wade i've i've probably met a few wades you know didn't think much of it but then i'm like oh let's look into it maybe there's something there
1: that's that's kind of cool so we've moved from the entrance to the underworld which in this case is really the exit the exodus from everything he knows to be the real world you know and and that's kind of Again, kind of interesting that everything in, in the physical world that had any value to him, he has put behind him. And now he is traveling and you know, he gets into a bus, he pays for a better seat. And I think that's just kind of interesting. He has enough money to pay Charon, the boat pilot, the boat master, to, to take him across the River Styx. Mm. And that, that transition to deeper down into the underworld takes you past a, a lot of scenery and a lot of bad places in which he also describes both looking back, maybe reflecting back into his life as into the living, if you will, into the real. Mm. And also looking as he crosses the landscape at the cities and as he passes each one of them, they're just in this sort of place of destitute. Sort of every, every city that is a waypoint in his travel is, is a place of hell. It's a hellscape. Mm. And they even say that they need guards on the bus because there are people that could possibly attack them. It is a possibility that the, the places between where he's coming from and where he's going are wrought with danger. And when we talk about the, the journey through the underworld to wherever it is you want to go, because there are a few places you can end up, it is also wrought with danger and, and you know could be the end of your soul if you don't make it where you're where you're headed. And ultimately, the Elysian Fields is is the, the final destination you'd like to end up. Uh, so you had made a comment. Uh, I think, was it, did we make the comment earlier about his transition, him looking back? That's right, you'd made the comment that he was that, really reflecting back. Yeah,
0: and he, even he says, he even says that like every night he would take off his visor and just kind of observe for a while. Just observe. And for someone who spends so much time you know jacked in you know, that was an interesting uh insight into his character that maybe he still kind of does desire that connection to the real world in some way, even if the real world is shitty like there's yeah it's it's still the real world I mean, you gotta be living in the real world to even get into the oasis and you know you need to have some relative amount of safety,
1: yeah, in which case he has not. And I found it interesting that, that as he gets off the bus to enter the new world, uh, to enter Columbus, Ohio, that he even describes that his chest gets heavy, that he has to mm. breathe deeply. It's like a panic attack. there's a attack. sudden pressure. Yeah, like a panic attack. And I was like, you know, what's the, what is the point that, that the author's kind of drilling into here? I mean, did he really need to describe that? Or is this the first moment? that he feels emotion throughout this entire chapter. Like there's so much shit that could piss him off or that he should feel angry or sad or something. And it's just this place of, of acceptance. And I want to say complacency, but let's just say acceptance of the suck that he is in mm. and the fact that he has left his his material mortal body behind and is now traveling deeper into the underworld.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's the first time he takes the visor off and walks around someplace that's not the stacks. Right. I mean, that's got to be really heavy.
1: Yeah, yeah. and he says that the the travel took what seemed like months because it's just a slow crawl across the landscape. And he described the view as perpetually bleak, and each decaying, overcrowded city that they rolled through looked just like the last. I can't, if I was to imagine a hellscape, this would kind of be it
0: it's like reading a post apocalyptic novel it sounds that oh. bad
1: <laughs> it really does like my first thought was what 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 else does this sound like this sounds like mad max and and that the the kind of the ending point there is him in this realization that he says now he was a fugitive living under assumed name and that powerful people were looking for him and that they were people who wanted him dead which that was kind of interesting because if they wanted him dead, he's about as close to dead as a live well, person could be.
0: My problem with his statement is that as far as he knows, they think he's dead. Who's looking yeah. for him? So that line yeah. like stuck out because I really thought it was incorrect. Uh, it I think it's trying to really like really hammer on the point that he's he's on his own. He's sort of hiding. He's got to be he's got to play it safe from here on out. But other like he's not really a fugitive in, in, in so much as you can be a fugitive from a corporation.
1: Well, I, you know, if you've changed your name and you're on the run, uh, one armed man or not, you're a fugitive. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> people are people are looking for you, and you're you're gonna find a, a place to sort of hunker down into. But even in the Greek story of transitioning into the underworld, there is still the potential to die further. Like it could get worse. Like there are still dangers involved, even though, as far as anyone else is concerned, you're dead.
0: But yeah. I mean, well, he, presumably he's going to keep looking for, you know, keys and gates. So they will eventually find out that he is alive. So at that point, they'll be like, oh, this son of a bitch is alive. We got to find him. So right. in that sense, he is hiding. But people don't know yeah. he's dead yet or that people don't know that he's still alive.
1: Right. I want to keep moving down this this line because I think there's a really neat parallel here and there's a part here where it says that whereas he was just at the edge of the Twin Rivers ghetto and he noticed a discolored outline on the building's facade where the Hilton logo used to be and that that is the that's the hotel that they end up going to and one of the things I thought was really kind of cool was when I think about the old world being transformed into a new demand but still using an older structure
0: mm.
1: here he mentions how people Used to travel. People used to travel before fuel and energy is yeah. way too expensive to even consider it. There were places that people would go to when traveling to stay, and it, it kind of it's neat how it describes this as a as a as a relic of the past because things are so bad no one can afford to travel, and then no one could afford to go someplace and stay temporarily.
0: Yeah. No, I I thought the exact same thing, and. Yeah, his whole journey to get there and like realize all these things, and uh, you know, even picking out the 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 facade and the logo outline, which you see nowadays, they just slap a new logo Uh on a building. You can see the outline of something. Uh, but yeah, the fact that it used to be a hotel and this relic of the past, and you know that. And I think he even says that it, it basically was designed for gunters. This,
1: now? Yeah. yeah
0: the, this hotel has basically been turned into apartments for gunters, and they come full with their rigs. Their, and he describes that there's no furniture but the rig.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I thought that's really Spartan for one. <laughs> uh, but really kind of a part of it is kind of like that's super cool because they're locked in. I mean, the hotel is technically like a prison. It's a prison of your own devising, but is still kind of like a prison. Like you have to do the retina and scan in, and then you go to your door, and there's kind of like this airlock process where you shut one door and enter through the next. I'm pretty sure that's how it was described. And then you enter into this room that has nothing. And I just imagine this sort of dark square space, almost like, you know, solitary confinement in a prison. That this is a willful solitary confinement. But even before that, what I thought was interesting is, is the numbers on the apartment. Mm. And, and there are two numbers here that I thought was really kind of cool. Because as you move, as you transition through the underworld, your goal is to arrive at the Elysian Fields. And the Elysian Fields are a completely different place than where you've come from. It is a place that is reserved for heroes and for gods. And it's a place where if you are a noble person, and, and you held to strict beliefs that you could possibly attain access into the Elysian Fields, to me, this hotel felt like at least the setup where he would finally live in the Elysian Fields, which is the oasis. Uh, but that in order to have received, to come to this place of permanence in this Greek heaven, if you will, that you have to go through the underworld, you have to go through hell. And there's those two things, because what he's really coming to that apartment for is what?
0: He's going there to find the egg.
1: He's looking for an answer. And 42 did not jump out at me. But you think you nailed it when we yeah. had chatted about this earlier.
0: Yeah, 42, the answer, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy.
1: And it's, it's, it is the answer that the entire book is built on. Like you go through all of this craziness to kind of finally come to the alien and ask the the question, and the alien comes back 42.
0: So what will figure it out. <laughs> so what are your thoughts on the 11?
1: I, I wonder if there's something behind that, because, you know, the, Ernest Klein doesn't just pull numbers out of his butt.
0: No, and actually that's something else that was from my little uh, um, dance with some of these uh, Anthony Burgess writings, was that, uh, I think he used the word, arithmology, that, like, every number, ev you know, is purposeful, and I had tried to find some time to look into the other IOI numbers that were popping up, and I didn't come up with much. But the only thing I could I could find on my search for forty two eleven was some pharmaceutical drug that uh, for treating opioid addiction. But I I hadn't thought to break it down further to just forty two and eleven. But you know, I thought forty two seemed almost cliche or obvious. But uh, the 11 is still a bit of a stump for me.
1: I could see the 42 and the opioid connection being a bit of a stretch. but Yeah, let's, it's let's a stretch. Assume for a moment, let's assume for a moment it's not because I like stretches. <laughs> uh, but if it was, I mean, him coming into this room and, and his dedication to the Oasis, that is like his opioid. In fact, when we look at the news today, even it's really relevant to pop culture, which is this pressure on Apple. To help kids get off the addiction of their phone. And that Apple is feeling some degree of pressure to do something to help kids not be addicted to the product that they are selling, which I might add is not per se an addictive substance, but from a, if you could make that leap that Apple has a sort of religious following, that the phone itself is possibly an, uh, yeah, I know, me too, is flashing <laughs> his phone. That That the phone, the hardware, the entire experience is a bit of an opioid of the masses,
0: yeah,, I mean, and uh, Ernest Klein does mention in, er- in the earlier chapter about how the Oasis has not been proven to be medically addictive, um, but every time it's referred to, like he g- gets on the bus and nearly immediately puts on his his visor, and when he he can't wait to get into his new apartment and log back in.
1: Yeah, that's it. There was something about him getting off the bus and having a panic attack. And it was him taking off his visor, stepping off the bus into the real world. That very much felt to me like a an addictive response. Yeah, Like the, I need my hit, so I'm panicking. The, like I'm having an uncontrollable panic to have my opioid fix.
0: Yeah, so, so here's the exact passage. As I stepped off the bus, I suddenly felt as though a heavy weight were resting on my chest. I was having a hard time breathing. Maybe I was having a panic attack. I forced myself to take deep breaths and tried to calm down. All I had to do was get to my new apartment, set up my rig, and log back into the Oasis. (laughs) Then everything would be all right. I would be back in familiar surroundings. I would be safe.
1: That's, it's, it's, and, and that, That drugs can provide a feeling of safety, even though we know he's not safe, or maybe even being dead is his safety, if you will. But that it is a perception of safety that being in his rig, even though he knows he can be killed, even though he knows that there's a crossover between the oasis and the real world, that the oasis is his familiar safe space, and it's just that entire line. I've worked in the the human help services, if you will and dealt with kids that were taken off the streets or taken away from abusive situations, and they had addictive situations, and there was this rationale that they had to take something in order to bring them to a place of normalcy, that their drug of choice, without it, they felt exposed and nervous and sick and desperate in order to find that place of comfort, which was the drug. And I thought, this is the first time I've heard Parsible, freak out about not being on the Oasis.
0: Yeah, and I, was ha- I had this thought while you were uh, just talking that you know, the relative safety of being in the Oasis for him, when in reality, when you're jacked in with the visor in front of your face, you are your, your most vulnerable. Think about it. You're just sitting there. You are not aware of your true surroundings. You're vulnerable.
1: That's one of the things I liked about the trailer that there are, and this isn't a spoiler, the trailer's out there, but there are scenes where you're driving down the street and you see people in droves standing on the side of the street with their visor on, and they make a poignant remark, which is there's no place for them to go. And there they are with their cheap hardware in the Oasis, nowhere to go. So they're just standing there experiencing the Oasis, just in the middle of the street, both safe and completely exposed. And it's that weird juxtaposition of of how something that puts you in a bad situation can still make you feel sort of sedated. Yeah. I love I love the the the, the drug connection there because I definitely felt that when I read that line.
0: Mm. Yeah, the Oasis does really sound like a really crazy drug. I All mean, right. And we see it now with, you know, the phones, the technology, the people that are just walking around like zombies on their phones as opposed to their Oasis headsets. I mean, it's, it's kind of
1: real. Yeah, yeah. It, it, is, a, it is real, uh, but I think it's also a real escape. Yeah. And you've just got so many people. And when you talk about addiction, what you're really talking about is, is an escape from something. You're escaping pain. You're escaping uh, using pleasure. As a means to supplant not having pleasure, so you hear about uh, sex addiction, addiction, gambling addiction, and so on. But these are symbols of moving towards something to get away from something else potentially. And I just i I thought particularly in this chapter where he has this very uh, monotone, almost sounding description of the shittiest of worlds. So my immediate thought was he's dead, he's died, he's totally shed his human self, and then he moves into. Uh, moves further into the underworld to a place where he's on the hero's journey into the dark. And I like at the very end of this chapter how he comes in and he says there's no furniture. Uh, It's a dark room where he just you know turns on the interior light switch and it's just this square. And that moving forward, that he would abandon the real world altogether. Like this entire chapter is his journey to abandoning the real world. And in the last sentence, it said, I would abandon the real world altogether until I found the egg. So it's this hero's quest into darkness until he retrieves what he wants from the underworld and then maybe returns back. And that's where we leave this chapter.
0: Yeah, it's it's a
1: heavy chapter. Yeah, It's way heavier than I imagined yeah. it listening to it the first what, time.
0: Like when you really start to dig into it, like preparing for a podcast, for instance— <laughs> you, you start seeing like all these different levels, and it's like, oh my god, there's a lot going on here. Like, uh, we talked about this before we started recording, but I saw it as a, a there's a lot of character development in Wade, in that you know he's an 18 year old kid whose life just blew up, and he still finds a way to pull his shit together, pick yep. pick up the pieces, and leave. And then start a new life or, you know, sort of like in his little cube-shaped prison. But, I mean, think about having to do that after being this close to dying. Someone tried to kill you and having the, uh, the ability to just shake things off and be like, all right, time to start over and focus on finding this egg i I just saw that as a significant amount of character development and uh growth and maturity on his part because if you're eighteen years old, even under the best of circumstances, doing that you know I mean nowadays people go to therapists for less than that and and he's just he's just doing
1: it no big deal i I took it as as something wholly different, and I think it's cool that that you came at it from a different angle. see from your perspective, this chapter seems hopeful and and almost powerful and empowering that he was able to just kind of dust off and and go start a new life. When it hit me, I was like, he's been beaten, He is down, and he is embracing death, as close to real death as he could possibly be. And he's, he's looking at the scoreboard as I imagine him sprawled out on the ground, bleeding out, and seeing his enemy, you know, basically pop it into his face. I've beaten you. I'm on the board. You're nothing. You're nobody. You're no longer special. I'm going to dominate this. There's many more of me than you and I have knocked you down. And for me it was this acceptance of him having to realizing he had to fully die in order to fully live in the oasis.
0: But so you didn't find that that last line about basically vowing to not leave until he found the egg as a glimmer of hope that he still has hope because that's kind of like it it ended that way and for me it was like he still has hope you know he hasn't given up yet like things may be bleak but he hasn't given up
1: it it feels like a lot of greek tragedies that that this seems to mimic at least in this chapter that i was you know I wasn't depressed. I was more like eating popcorn. Oh my God. I see what they're getting at here. Is he going to get out of this? Will he find what he's looking for? Is he going to stay in hell because he can't find what he's looking for? No, I,
0: you know? I, I definitely see that side of it because like the more I think about it, he, all he's been doing has been hunting. And the events of the last few days in the book have all basically proven that there's going to there's be an end to the hunt. And that's all he's really known, and that's all he's been doing. So, for the realization that th- this thing that he's been doing—that's been his whole existence—could be over, and that there's some- gonna, he's gonna need to do something afterwards.
1: Just thinking back, that uh, the one thing he needs to truly defeat Sorrento, who is in this position—at least in this chapter, in my mind—a god with almost, almost insurmountable power and that there's only one path there there is no b plan there's only an a plan because the b plan he killed by tossing the keys away
0: that move still surprises me the throwing of the keys but anyway
1: well he's it that's that's the shedding of his physical life like that's literally his spirit leaving his body the more I'm thinking on it, the more I, I kind of kind of circle back around so i'm not gonna I'm not gonna continue to circle back around, but have we covered everything that you wanted to chew on here?
0: There's a few things that uh I found that uh not necessarily this chapter, going back to what I'd found while listening to a clockwork orange that gave me some a little bit more insight into Wade's character and uh potentially something that would made me wonder if A Clockwork Orange had more to do with the writing of Ready Player One than I initially would have thought, especially given the fact that uh, Sorrento's IOI number is Alex's um, prison number in the
1: movie.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, We'll expand on that.
0: I will uh, segue, (laughs) right? (laughs) Uh, So we had talked in the last chapter and in the previous chapter about the stupid decisions that Wade was making with regards to agreeing to meet up with Sorrento and listen to their pitch. And I think many of us agree that that was kind of dumb. So rather than just being dumb for the sake of being dumb, you know, I thought there, there had to be more to it than that. And while I was reading this introduction, that Anthony Burgess wrote to A Clockwork Orange uh, in 1986, which was a f- quite a-, a few years after the original publication. Uh, he talks a little bit about, um, well, for one, th- one thing I didn't know was that in the UK and the world, other than the United States, that book was published with an extra chapter.
1: Okay, weird. Wait, yeah. what?
0: Yeah, there there was an additional chapter that totally changes what happens with the main character Alex. Uh he basically ends the movie and the American version of the book you know basically being the exact same asshole that he was. But in the in the 21st chapter he kind of has a bit of a redemption. He decides that he wants to do good and you know start a family and you know, try to be a good person. Like he, he doesn't have the drive to do the ultra violence and those things. And what Anthony Burgess just talked about was that uh, one of the reasons why he was kind of disappointed by that change in the American version of, of his novel was that uh, he feels that it's no longer a novel if there's no possibility of moral transformation or an increase of wisdom in the main character. So, without that last chapter, that's in the uh, UK version, uh, Al, a- Anthony Burgess would describe that novel as uh, a fable or an allegory, as opposed to a novel, because there's no there's no growth in the character. So, I thought about that in the context of Ready Player One, and you know, he talks about um, uh, moral transformation or increase of wisdom. So I feel like some of these stupid mistakes that Wade makes in the book are giving him something to improve upon or for his character to increase in wisdom and, or have that moral transformation and just a little bit more depth to the character. Cause otherwise, like, you know, he sounds like a a good kid. He cares about Mrs. Gilmore and and he still were, you know uh, he still feels very bad about the, what happened to everybody else in the stacks, even though it was, you know, his awful aunt and that douchebag that she was dating, you know, he, he feels bad. He, he, he's a, he's a good guy. He's a, you know, and, uh, Anthony Bird just goes on to say that, you know, it's inhuman to be a hundred percent good or a hundred percent evil. So I think Wade, Wade has to have some shortcomings and some, uh, he needs to have some flaws and you know, there's plenty more book left where we're going to see more of those flaws. Uh, So I, I I just, I listened to that and I was like, Oh, you know what? Maybe, maybe there's more to Wade's stupidity than just token stupidity.
1: I think that, I think you're right. And, and uh, I'm going to circle that also back around to a couple chapters ago. And if we're going to compare this to, a hero story where the hero has godlike powers. So let's say he is like Hercules, who has a little bit of God in him, but he is very human. But amongst the human worlds, amongst the other Gunters, if you will, when you have these remarkable strengths, sometimes from sources that you don't know of. I mean, he's you know his father died and his mom died. I mean, he talks about how his father uh, was really big into comic books, how he named him. Uh, Wade Watts, how he has this shadowy background that kind of hints that his future is going to be steeped in this anyhow, that it's going to be steeped in this culture that he has become himself obsessed with. It's almost like the mother that bred with a god that produced the son that has these remarkable powers but doesn't really know where they came from and in the beginning believes that it is all him. And from that, an arrogance sprouts that I'm hot shit. I know I'm hot shit. I became hot shit on my own. And on receiving that email, that is him going to where the, the malicious God lives and believing in the moment that because he is hot shit in his realm, that he is also going to be hot shit against this, this, this God. He doesn't view him as an equal. I'd say in this chapter, it's very clear. Weight is not an equal in comparison to IOI, and that Sorrento is, as we had talked about, this, as an individual, not a god, but in the Oasis, he is a god with many heads and is incredibly powerful. And the hero has to be smacked down. The hero has to do something stupid, and has to be boisterous, has to be arrogant, and then they have to be knocked down a peg. And from being knocked down a peg, deep depression can set in a a travel of uh, through inward searching for meaning in whatever power you think you have and what that means and how you're going to truly leverage it against something that you are now way less powerful than and realize. And I think that's where he ends up. So whereas before I didn't think he was stupid, now I think it is pivotal to his story that he did stupid stuff. Mm because it shows both his arrogance and pride, but also what he thought of himself in comparison to Sorrento and was quickly shown that there is no comparison. Wade may be smarter, but the overall power of IOI and Sorrento is nearly insurmountable for the person that Wade is in this moment and that he has to grow beyond it, and now he has to dig deeper into who he is and the powers that are within him. And that the end of this chapter is his dedicating to no bullshit having to w- work harder to become more powerful than Sorrento or not come out at all. So uh, in that sense I think that that chapter being missing and I think that's really cool is like is a is a good reflection of society because in our society when you fuck up and you do something stupid we throw you into a hole. We don't care if you get better. There is no heroism in you not being constantly tortured for the uh, a few moments of stupidity that you have suffered. But in other countries, recovering from the stupidity and going to that place where you have to learn and coming back out a better person is the better story. It is being the hero of the self. And that just doesn't fly here. Like, here we're into revenge movies. Look at everything Tarantino's done. Revenge, 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 revenge. It's somebody's an asshole, and they get shit that's coming, and they die horrendously. And we say fuck a bazillion times.
0: And in multiple languages.
1: And in multiple languages. And that is what I think our American culture loves, is the feeling of seeing an asshole get it. And that's the end of the story. You know, draw the curtain. And the real story ought to be a person who is horrible, gets, gets it, and then coming out of that becomes a better person. And it almost glorifies a bad person in our society. But I got to imagine in other societies, that's the optimal outcome. That's what you would want to have happen. That really does make the story, because the main character isn't a villain. It's a person who just goes through strife and becomes a better person. People like those kinds of stories. I agree with you, and I, I, I like the kinds of stories where even the villain can come out potentially a better person, even if sometimes that means they may not fully pay for everything they've done.
0: Oh, so you might actually like the complete version of Clockwork Orange, if you can get past all the NADSAT speak.
1: Did you read that other chapter, that final yeah, chapter? Yeah, it was that, in there. That, it was in the audiobook, that's... yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, maybe maybe— you know, it, when I first saw the movie, and I really didn't see all of it, uh, I got to a certain point, and one of the peeps that was in the room kind of flipped out. Uh, and that was due to her own personal trauma. And I'm sure you can imagine various mm-hmm. points in the movie where that kind of shit might, you know, cause somebody to trigger a little, yeah, right? Yeah,
0: just a little bit.
1: And at that point, the movie went off. And I hadn't come back to it afterwards. So I didn't get the kind of enjoyment that a lot of other people did where he did a lot of horrible shit. And then you get that revenge satisfaction where a lot of horrible shit happens to him. Mm. Uh, uh, but then, and then, of course, the missing chapter where everything turns out okay. Yeah. So I may, I may have to circle back around and listen to that on audiobook. Yeah.
0: It, it almost seems a little bit unfair that things do kind of sort of turn out okay for him. Uh, or at the very least he he turns a new leaf and wants to do good uh, uh because he does some really horrible stuff and like how is he not rotting
1: away somewhere it, it it uh do you feel do you feel the american culture like persuading you i feel it like i feel like that's a persuasive cultural thing
0: it was the conscious choice of the american publisher to say for an american audience you got to get rid of that last chapter we will not publish it unless you agree to get rid of that last chapter and he agreed because he he desperately needed the money <laughs> <laughs> and thinking about it more it's like as a society we believe that rehabilitation is possible
1: I, I believe it's possible i just i don't think society cares not ours at least like we love the idea that there's a hole we can throw bad people in and that when they come out of that hole They're not better. They're just allowed to come out of the hole.
0: Yeah. Well, that's the way it is in practice, really.
1: (laughs) Yeah. 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 Society kind of drives the demand for just, you know, throwing them in a hole and punishment, punishment. Who cares what happens to them?
0: Think about how hard it is for um, uh, ex-convicts to, like, find work. People don't want to hire them. They want them to be able to find a job, but they don't want to hire them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But imagine how much better our society would be. If uh, you went to jail and jail wasn't a place of punishment, it was a place of required learning. It was a place of grooming socially. It was a place of dealing with and and correcting the drives and identifying the drives, the the chemical imbalances that move us in the directions that we do, uh, that, that are potentially harmful to everyone else around us. And that coming out of jail or out of prison, it isn't that you were released. It's that you were birthed back into society as a better person than when you came in and everyone knew it. And they, they say, you know what? We're going to give you a real education and we're going to teach you how society works and that you're going to come out a hell of a lot smarter. And we're going to have people look at you and figure out what we can do to help you deal with the problems that have caused you to come here. But that is society. You are required to stay here until you fix this. Did you imagine
0: one day, like going to the grocery store and like, there's Hitler, you know, packing your groceries for you. It's like, no, th- nobody would want that.
1: Nobody would pass by Hitler and go, I'm so proud of you for yeah. becoming a better person. Mazel
0: tub and your accomplishment.
1: After killing millions of people. <laughs> oh, we should end the show now. <laughs> we have already gone down the path of the most common evil trope there is. Uh I like where we've ended off with the chapter. I'm excited to see what happens. Again, I mean, I know what's going to happen in (laughs) the next chapter, but I'm excited to get there. And I'm excited with the revelations that we've kind of come to with a chapter that otherwise struck me as completely boring. Uh, So I'm going to end the show by saying, my name's Chris. And I'm Aaron. Next chapter, we will have Ryan back, and he'll be able to toss in even more on all the stuff that we talked about. But until then, this is Get to the Good Part. Stay tuned.